Jim. It's Jamie at the Police Impound. They picked up your car again. Lately, they've been driving it more than you have. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we discuss the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And today we are going back to season two for our yeah. episode of uh, Focus Epi. Which episode are we talking about this time? Uh, this is the reincarnation of Angie, not to be confused with the reincarnation of Angel, <laughs> which is not a Rockford Files episode, but what I read it as when I first looked at it on my tiny phone screen. Mm. I, I was super excited for that. I enjoyed this episode. I, I want to point out there is no Angel in it. That's fine. Not every episode of television has to have Angel in it. Mm. But um, yeah, so this is, uh, uh, like you said, se- uh, season two, 1975? Uh, December 1975. Uh, just in the 75s. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, and I picked this one uh, mostly on a lark uh, <laughs> just kind of skimming through what we haven't done so far. Um, and also with our recording schedule, uh, kind of wanted to pick something that would not lead us into another, into a follow-up episode necessarily. Right, yeah. When we've been doing the early season ones, I've been enjoying, uh, the tone of them. Um, which isn't to say I don't enjoy the other ones, but it's kind of like the, the balance of emphasis on what rockford actually does is yes. different and like this episode has some good like tradecraft oh, stuff yes um no this is so that was really fun uh with the moment this episode started i mean i guess we'll jump into it when we jump into it but like i the moment this episode started i got this warm fuzzy feeling <laughs> I, whatever i get warm fuzzy feelings when um the uh opening montage of every show starts <laughs> but uh i uh, or every episode, I should say, not every show. But um, there, I remembered liking this one. I remember like having good feelings about this mm-hmm. one. Let, let's talk a little bit about this one before we talk a little bit about this one. Okay. Uh, I I have a theory, and maybe as we go through it, you can talk me out of it. Okay. I think that there is another story that this started as. Hmm. Not like um, uh, Into Thin Air or whatever the, the one where... Not like a story written for somebody else that got turned into a Rockford Files, but mm-hmm. like uh, I think that there's more about Angie. Mm. We name it after her, we get a little bit about it, and then the ending is just lays heavy into this aspect of the story that isn't super pertinent throughout it. Right. And I wonder if they started off one way and then they were like, you know what? It's fun to just watch Rockford Rockford <laughs> up and we'll just go with that. So this is a, a Stephen Cannell script, um, mm-hmm. and I feel like there's a bit of uh, a bit of a signature, or maybe a bit of a consideration that he has in some of these scripts um, that tracks with what you're saying. Um, and I think something that a lot of his scripts seem to do is embed. I don't really know how to phrase it. Kind of a, a a character-driven statement about the world in kind sure. of this, like, you see it a little bit, and then there's a moment where it really gets spelled out for you. Where Rockford has it all figured out. Mm-hmm. The, the, not the 
mystery or anything. He just has the world figured out, like knows knows how things are. So you should listen to him. Right. And is and is the voice of like the not the voice of reason necessarily, but kind of the he's representative of like the self-actualized person who is like right. fully cognizant of themselves. Um, and like, or is able to differentiate their desires from reality. Yeah, he's not filling reality with his wishful thinking, right? So he's so it comes off as sensible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I can see that definitely, and it's it's not an entirely endearing trait, <laughs> right? <laughs> we yeah. often agree with Rockford as mm-hmm. we're watching, and in fact, in this episode, quite often, I'm like, there are moments where he is wrong but has reason to be wrong has reasons to be suspicious of something right. and so it's he's actually right to be suspicious even though that doesn't pan out to be the truth mm-hmm. uh yeah I, it, it's an interesting thing to see like in contrast to like the character of angel who again does not appear in this episode <laughs> uh angel is like the other side of that coin mm-hmm. no i shouldn't say that I'll take that back. <laughs> well, I think it's kind of a contrast to maybe some of the like recurring characters that we've been talking about recently. Yeah. So like this episode, and I'm also thinking about like uh, uh, the Aaron Ironwood one is kind yeah. of does this a little bit. Um, two into five fifty six won't go. Might yeah. be a, a closer comparison. So those were both also canal scripts. Two into five fifty six won't go as a similar dynamic. The subject of our story is a woman who has lost something and right. has a rosier picture than maybe what reality is about what's going on. Um, and so, in these instances, we have these the uh, central characters to the story that we're only going to see this one time. Yeah. So their character is kind of built on this dynamic of being unaware of something and then. Jim having to either be the, the, the person who tells them the truth or the right, person yeah. who shields them from the truth. Right. Yeah. This is as opposed to like the, uh, the Rita, uh, Rita Moreno character, Rita. Yeah. Uh, or Gandhi, who are recurring characters that have like a more three dimensional relationship with Jim. Yeah. They, they, they have experiences that Jim, uh, he's, he's not the, the audience's, yeah, voice in yeah. the story, really, in the way that he kind of is in this episode, uh, or like kind of channeling what we should think. Right. This is probably a little abstract. We should just talk about the episode. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the episode. But now that we've told our uh, listeners that, that this <laughs> is the case, we'll now point it out every time it comes up because it will come up several times in this episode. This uh, this was directed by Jerry London. Uh, with this episode, we're now one away from a full Jerry London sweep. Uh, we have seen all of his episodes that he's directed except for a season three episode, uh, sticks and stones may break your bones, but Waterbury will bury you. (laughs) Such good titles. So we can look forward to that as our final uh, bit. And this, um, this one uses some really, uh, I feel like he does a lot of these episodes. Um, I think one of his little things that he does really well is like allowing the camera to show us stuff without moving it really and letting stuff come in and out of frame in a very fluid way. But we've talked about him on other episodes. So all that out of the way, as you were saying with your warm feelings, when you start an episode, (laughs) which warm feelings did you, uh, did you experience with this preview montage? (laughs) Well, so this preview montage, 
Uh, all right, I'm looking at what I have written down here. Uh, well, first off, federal agent. It's always mm-hmm. great when there's fed, the feds are involved. Uh, now that I think about it, I thought, oh, okay, good. The feds are involved. This is going to be Rockford in over his head. I, more so than he normally is. Like he's, But actually, he wasn't in this one. Yeah. Uh, murdered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I think my two favorite moments of this uh, montage is the foot stomp. Yep. The intimidating foot stomp, which... I'm trying to remember. There was another episode we watched recently where he had another. He had a move like that. I think it was the movie. I think it was in If the Frame Fits. I think I have a feeling that Gandhi's done it once. Gandhi did or, it in Second Chance. There's something about stomping someone's foot that is or was more intimidating then than it is now. <laughs> <laughs> and also, this foot stomp bears the lead on what happens in that scene. And then finally, don't stab the car. <laughs> When the goon pulled out a knife and it looked like he was going to stab the firebird, I was like, I will watch anything to get to that <laughs> point to see what happens. Uh, yeah, I noted all the same things. Uh, there's a there's a bit where you see Jim like trying to be nice, like saying like, yeah, <laughs> why were you seeing all this violent language? Yeah. But yeah, the foot stomp really, uh, really was my takeaway. Thanks for listening to 200 a day. In case you've just joined us, we have a new podcast, Plus Expenses, a show where we talk about movies we're watching, books we're reading, and games we're playing. Plus Expenses is an exclusive bonus for our patrons over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. This show will remain free to all for as long as we do it. But if you want to help support us and get access to the new Plus Expenses audio feed, you can become a patron for just $1 an episode. Of course, each episode we extend a special thanks to our gumshoe-level patrons. This time, we say thank you to Jim Crocker. In addition to supporting the show, he sells our games at conventions east of the Mississippi. See where to find him, at Jim Likes Games on Twitter. Shane Liebling, if you play games online, you should check out his free dice-rolling app Roll for Your Party at rollforyour.party. Kevin Lovecraft, you know you can hear him on the RPG Actual Play podcast, the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars, over at misdirectedmark.com. Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Bill Anderson, Dave P., and Dale Church. And finally, big thanks to Victor DeSanto and our detective patrons that you can follow on Twitter. Eric Antoner, at Antoner, Brian Pereira, at Thermoware, and of course, Richard Haddam, who you can find at Richard Haddam. Help out the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, tell a friend who you think would like it, and check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. We start off this episode with the ring of a telephone. <laughs> Our whole introductory sequence, this is all pre, pre-Jim. This is uh, stuff that happens yeah. before he comes into the picture. Um, a, a woman answers the phone. Uh, this is the titular Angie, uh, Angela Paris. And she's being called by her brother, Tom, uh, from a phone booth. And he's clearly panicked. Two, two important details to point out here. The first is the PSA about phone booths <laughs> to kids these days. If you don't, if you don't remember what a phone booth is, it is a place you go just before you're killed. <laughs> you're somehow uh, stricken with some sort of emergency where you shouldn't put yourself in a glass cage just before. <laughs> right, and yet, yes, and then we should point out to avoid any confusion. With a, another podcast, <laughs> uh-huh. 20 a Day, uh, which is about uh, the holodeck adventures 
of the Star Trek. This is not the same Tom Paris no. that you're thinking of. Uh, it's spelled differently. Yep. Um, so, yes, Tom is in a panic. Uh, he wants Angela to go to his house, take a package out of a wall safe, and take it to the bank. Um, yes. She didn't know he had a wall safe and does not know the combination. So he's going to give it to her, but she needs to go get a piece of paper to write it down. So while she is off the phone doing that, uh, we have the poor choice of phone booth come into play as uh, a couple of goons barge in, grab Tom, and hustle him off into a, into a waiting car. Um, and then we end the scene with the first of a, of a motif, I think, in this episode, yeah. where we have one of our, uh, who clearly seems to be our main goon, and we'll talk about him later. But clearly, uh, uh, the, the one in charge, he picks up the phone and then we see him just holding it to his ear, kind of in like a close up. And Angie is like saying, you know, Tom, Tom, where are you? Whatever. And he just hangs up. But this like close shot of being on the phone, mm-hmm. um, I, I think definitely, yeah. uh, becomes a, becomes a motif. Deliberate decision. Mm hmm. The credits play as Angie goes and gets in her car and, you know, is presumably going to Tom's house. But we see that she's being followed by someone in a green car. We then introduce our our hero, Jim Rockford, in the trailer as he and Rocky are fast asleep in front of the TV. I love this seat so much. They've clearly had a, had a comfortable night in and they're both just snoozing with the TV on. Yeah. I, I thought this was... An interesting choice. I don't think it is significant in particular, but we start with this zoom in on Rocky and then it pans to Jim as the phone starts ringing in the trailer. It's kind of like, okay, we know who's important here. (laughs) And it's uh, Angela is calling him. She has a she's at like a bodega or something and she has a phone book open and she is apparently, you know, because Jim is in the phone book is calling him at random, I guess. Uh, this is a great insight into how does Jim Rockford get jobs? Right. <laughs> like this is most often, I, I, I feel like we've watched a lot of episodes where it's people Jim knows has gotten into trouble, have mm-hmm. gotten into trouble and that's it. Right. Like that's, uh, we haven't watched ones where he's been hired. It's either that or he's been hired for the sake of playing a patsy. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but this one, uh, this is just, Yeah. His name was pulled out of a phone book. She's uh, she's calling because she's, you know, freaked out. Uh, she received this strange phone call from her brother, and now she's definitely being followed. Yeah. Um, and she's understandably pretty, uh, uh, I don't know if she's fully, she's not like terrified, but she's clearly in a bad place about this whole thing. So having no other recourse, apparently, she found a PI in the phone book and gave him a call. <laughs> Well, she's been specifically warned by her brother not to involve the police. Yes, right. Don't call the police. Whatever you do, don't don't involve the cops was part of his uh, message to her. Um, so Jim, uh, like we said earlier, there's a lot of PI tradecraft in yeah. this episode. Oh, this one's so good. This one's good because it's like, clearly, this is something that he has just set up for for this kind of thing. All right. There's, uh, there's a bar named the Colony Inn on Wilshire. Go inside and sit at the bar. Put two packs of cigarettes, one on top of the other, in front of you, and I'll be there in, oh, 10, 15 minutes, all right? Either either this is a trick that he's had in his back pocket for a while, or he just has these situations arise enough that he knows 
like he's just crafting in his head like oh okay this is how we'll do it mm-hmm. you know this is what we need to do to meet and not draw attention to ourselves or you know right oh it's so good though uh one thing in here she describes the car to him she says i'm being she's being i'm being followed yeah. by a like a green ford something something um this is important later yes so we go to jim finding her at the bar um the plan works and he asks where's the guy who's been following you and sure enough he's come in and he's at a table in the corner just watching uh you can see him in the mirror over the bar which is a nice little visual yeah. touch and he's doing the like again kind of he has these professional instincts right he's like don't look yeah. over there you know yeah, just yeah. <laughs> just tell me what's going on uh she gives him the story thus far my brother called me he told me to open the safe don't involve the cops then he just then he wasn't there when i came back to get the number I'm worried now this guy's following me uh jim asks what he does and he is the head of institutional investment at uh <laughs> this this brokerage firm apparent or something uh and so jim's like okay so yeah he's a stockbroker yeah and she's like uh not really but close enough fine that's close enough yeah then jim goes to talk to our goon this guy is a real wiener. <laughs> he is. <laughs> and cast for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's balding with this big, obvious comb over. Jim tries to get him to back off. He is having none of it. And we have our threatening back and forth conversation uh, from the preview montage where Jim yeah. says that. Why are we threatening each other? This is the, the first round of a lot of tough guy talk in this episode. Um, yeah. But I feel like at no point... At no point did I feel like Jim was being intimidated by this guy. There's one point where I think we're meant to think that. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what Jim is trying to convey to him. <laughs> the uh, you know, I really love this conversation. There's also a motif that's going to come out of this one. Uh, all right. So first, like the first thing I have in my note here is just the direct approach. Right. He comes in, and so far, what we've seen from Jim is a lot of finesse, mm-hmm. right? Like, stack these two cigarettes up. Don't point them out. Like, describe them to me. Oh, we can watch them in the mirror. You know, all of this, like, misdirect and, and Heidi. And then <laughs> once Jim, like, knows who he is, he's like, all right, I'm going to go have a conversation with you. And, mm-hmm. and then comes over and is just like, stop following her. Like, <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's assessed the situation, and he's decided that the best way to deal with it is just to come and sit down and have this talk with this guy. Right. And the guy, I, I wish I'd written down some of the things that the guy said. It was basically, you know, I'm going to put you in traction. I'm going to put you in county hospital for yeah. a broken jaw. Mm. And Jim's like, oh, who's going to do that? You and, and what army or whatever. But this moment where Jim stomps his foot, mm-hmm. you know, I made fun of it earlier, but this is this is great because... It's under a table. He's not expecting it, right? Like, it's not a... Um... So this whole thing... So this this starts our, our sucker punch motif, right? Yeah, I was going to say, this is... It's not a punch, but it's the sucker punch. Because yeah. Jim is playing what he's he's saying, like, oh, we can work this out. You know, yeah. we can come to an agreement. And then once the guy kind of relaxes his guard just a little bit, that's when Jim stomps on his foot under the table and also grabs his head and slams it into the top of the table... And then the whole audience looks, or the audience, everyone in the restaurant looks over, but they don't know what to make of what just happened. And Jim then, like, he kind of rebounds, and Jim's holding his collar and then starts brushing him off. Like, like, oh, what did, 
this weird accident. <laughs> like, here, I'll help you. <laughs> I hope you're okay. And then this guy pulls out his uh, ID. He's a fed. How would you like to be booked for assaulting a federal officer? So then Jim... We get Jim acting. Yes. Uh, so we've seen him do this before, which is where he's rough with someone, and then it turns out they're a cop or a fed yeah. or an IRS agent, perhaps. And he immediately gets apologetic and, you know, backs down and it's like, oh, maybe I can, how can I help you some other way, you know, kind of stuff. And here he's doing that. It's a fun little moment because as a Rockford viewer, it's kind of like, okay, this is how Jim rolls. And now this is getting more complicated. There's a Fed involved, you know, we're yeah. off to the races. My notes literally said that, like, it was like, oh, Jim, cha Jim changes gears because there's a Fed, but... But he is acting apologetic. He's not actually apologetic, as we find out, because he then says, I want to apologize. If you'd, know, if you'd known I was coming, you could have taken me. That was a sucker punch. <laughs> yes. And he reaches out a hand to, like, shake hands, like, uh, to, you know, oh, we're all good, right? And as soon as the guy takes his hand, he then pulls him in close for another literal sucker punch across the face and uh and then him and, and angie uh get out of the bar before uh our quote federal agent can recover <laughs> uh it's good so that sucker punch number two just so the audience is paying attention and when he does that as a viewer i'm like oh, okay he obviously is not a real agent right yeah. because jim yeah. would never do that to an actual uh <laughs> fed so clearly he he got some tell that that wasn't uh, the case. Yeah, J Jim knows something here that uh, we don't. This episode doesn't really hide anything from the audience. Uh, yeah. And it's one where the viewers know a little bit more than Jim does. Yeah. Um, and that's established pretty quick, I think. But uh, it's always interesting to kind of see what level audience knowledge versus character knowledge there is in these. Because uh, this one's pretty pretty biased in our favor. I would say this is maybe the only scene where that happens. Like Jim has figured out that this guy isn't a fed before we know, mm -hmm. but that is our clue that he's not a fed. Yeah. And then he explains it in this next scene. Yeah. Uh, so uh, they hit the road. The guy can't follow because before that he went into the bar, Jim, uh, because he had the description of the car from Angie took a rotor out of his engine. Yes. And uh, they don't run too good without those. So another great little piece of tradecraft. Yeah. Oh, it's just filled with them. He explains that he knew that it was a fake ID because uh, the picture was taken against a blue background like your driver's license and not a yellow background like an actual federal ID would. And he knows that because he has his own fake federal ID with yes. his picture against a blue background where it's been like, you know, cut and, and laminated into a into an official ID like holder. So now we all know exactly what happened. Yeah. Now it's time to call the police and she's no, no cops. My yeah. brother didn't want any cops involved. Um, this is a perhaps leaned on a little too heavily. Uh, we're like her insistence on not calling the cops is kind of what keeps things going. But yeah, it keeps, keeps them from just pulling into a safe Harbor and being done. So she's like, well, now that that's over with, we should talk money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, uh, please, as the as the accountant here, take it away. Jim's like, okay, it's two hundred a day, right? And as you would be in nineteen seventy five, when someone said, uh, <laughs> "You owe me two hundred dollars." You owe me two hundred dollars for 
beating someone up and uh he did work yes but may have gotten her in more trouble than she was in you know like it just uh so she has this reaction to it uh she clearly doesn't have two hundred dollars uh so she offers him twenty five dollars for the half hour Mm -hmm. worth of work uh that he has and then this argument follows a pattern that i love maybe it's an annoying pattern to other people but uh, the you know, she starts off by saying 200 I can't do that. And also, you didn't do enough work for $200 or whatever. But I have $25. And now Jim is like, I don't want to sell my services for $25. So why don't you just tell me where you live? I'll take you home and we'll call it done. Right. Like, let's, I don't want the money. And she's like, well, I owe you money. Right. So I'm going to give you money. And uh, during this time, she gives him the address of where they're going. Right, and they they drive which is, there, which is Tom's house, which turns out to be more of a house than you would expect from somebody who can only she's a she's a bookkeeper. That's an important thing to. Well, uh, so he's operating. He's also operating under. He's like Tom's a stockbroker, right? And then they pull up to this house, and it's this big fancy house. So he's kind of acting a little bit like, "Come on, like you can get yeah. this somewhere. Like look at this house." And yeah. then she has her thing where she's like. We, you know, he's my brother. We have li- live separate lives. Uh, yeah. I'm a bookkeeper at a restaurant. She makes $220 a week. Uh, but my favorite bit in all of it, in this argument, mm-hmm. is that she has, she's a dollar twenty six short. And Jim tries to turn the money away, and she throws it at him. Mm-hmm. I don't even know why I love it so much. I just love that it's over this little bit amount of money. Like it just keeps whittling away. It keeps getting smaller and smaller. There's something very like human about that. Yeah. I have been in those kinds of situations. I assume many of, if not most of our listeners have where it's like the money is a symbol. Right. Yeah. So the, the conversation isn't really like the, the amount of money is kind of immaterial because now it's symbolic of, you know who owes who? Who's treating who's treating who like an adult? It's it it's a status play in certain ways. It's also a class thing, right? Like yeah. you get the idea that she's you know she's living this life where she's acutely aware of having lots of money because of her brother, but she doesn't live that lifestyle. Yes, for you know working class people, knowing exactly how much money you have and what it's worth uh, is that's important kind of core to um to, to that identity in a lot of ways and so rejecting that money is kind of saying like oh so you don't think i'm a person right you don't think i can yeah and this is all handled through her you know how she her 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 anger spikes and you know she, yeah uh, kind of has this seemingly outsized reaction but it makes total sense to me as the rest of her character has established um yeah it's good stuff uh she says that she'll mail him the rest <laughs> but uh he doesn't have a good feeling about this and when she goes you know leaves the car and goes up to the door he follows her and says that all right i have a special sucker rate it's 2374 <laughs> yes. and you have me for another 10 minutes yeah. so we see jim give in to his to his uh his inability to to let someone who is in danger just remain yeah yeah she uh she turns off the burglar alarm which is a in a big box on the outside of the house which doesn't seem like a great uh piece of security <laughs> but what do i, I know thinking the same thing that, i mean there was a key to it it seemed like but yeah um 
So, and goes to find this wall safe. Uh, she doesn't have the combination. She asks Jim if, uh, well, couldn't we crack it or blow it? Right? <laughs> like, I've seen this in, in movies. Jim, ever the professional, gives it a little <laughs> listen with it and lists off all the, you know, all the things about why it's such a great safe. All the tumblers and thickness yeah. and German made and everything. Uh, you could load it up with, uh, plastic explosive and it would shoot this house off the foundation and it wouldn't even be scratched. He's a little needlessly cruel about it, but uh, she's not listening to him telling her she's in trouble. Right. And she has a line here where... The bookkeepers of this world, Mr. Rockford, count numbers, but they don't count. Tom counts. He counts plenty. And I'm going to do exactly what he told me, if that means chipping away at that safe over there with a kitchen knife. (sighs) I wrote it down, too. It was good. But my brother counts. Yes. Which I think really, again, gets to that class consciousness and... Yeah. uh, I have a worldview within which I operate, and you're asking me to go outside my worldview, which I will not do. Um, So she's going to look for the combination somewhere, and she starts looking through drawers. Uh, This is a great bit here where Jim is clearly... uh, He's he's joking, right? And he's saying, where do people keep their keys? Over the door or under the mat? So where do people keep their safe combination on a piece of masking tape underneath a desk drawer? And she looks, and sure enough, the combination is, in fact, written on a piece of tape on the bottom of a drawer. And Jim looks startled. Yeah, no, the look on his face was was brilliant. It was very, uh, it's like a magician who didn't think they were going to pull off a trick. Mm-hmm. And is not, not just startled, but maybe a little, little frightened by the fact that it worked. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like, oh, that never works. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a fun uh, bit. Um, he opens the safe. I have a note where I'm like, fingerprints, Jim. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Like, But uh, that does not come back. That's not a thing. But that's totally a thing that could happen. Before this this moment, he he's when she asks, oh, maybe we should crack the safe. And he just mm-hmm. goes up and fiddles with it was when I was like, what are you doing, Jim? Like, oh, come on. We know better than this. Uh, sure enough, inside the safe is a brown paper wrapped package uh, tied up with string. And before they can untie it to see what's in it, we hear the sound of breaking glass. And uh, <laughs> we see it in the frame. And then I didn't realize that it was there until the end of the scene. It's just like a well choreographed little bit where they turn off the lights. Jim goes back over and grabs the keys out of her purse. Yes. And then he kind of disappears. And we cut to the guys breaking in, who are the two goons that we saw jumping Tom in the phone booth. Uh, they come into the house. Uh, we have a kind of a tense moment where Angie is hiding under the desk. And then she starts, like, raising her head, like, to see if they're there. Yeah. It's like, no, why are you doing that? But Jim ran outside of the house and turned the burglar alarm back on with the key that he took out of her. And so the alarm starts going off and the goons scram. Uh, as they peel away, he gets at least the first part of their license plate number. I expected this bit to have a little bit more of a payoff. I'm, I mean, I'm yeah. not upset that it didn't, but like, because uh, that's the thing. I recently had a moment where uh, I, I saw some suspicious activity outside my front window. And I looked at the license plate of the car and then the car left. And I realized that I had memorized one digit of that <laughs> license plate. <laughs> 
and it, it turned out to be nothing. But like, I completely uh, like I have sympathy for D- Jim in this scene because it's not it's not as easy as you'd expect it to be. You're thinking about a lot of different things at that moment, and then yeah, Chicago has transitioned from for a street parking from meters where you like get like a, a receipt and you put it on your dashboard. Yeah. Uh, to ones where you just do it all on the little machine and put in your license plate number. Oh, and yeah, then yeah. they read what is in there, and I don't know. I don't know how it works, but you don't have to get a ticket. It's magic. It's magic. Uh, I've had, I've, and I don't park where I need to get metered parking that often, but in the last couple of weeks, I've had to do it a couple of times. Yeah. And each time, even though it's my car and my license plate, I can only remember the first three. <laughs> yes. Here it's a it's a letter and two numbers and then there's four numbers. I can only remember the first three. And as I'm walking away from the car to find the box, I'm saying the whole thing over and over. Yeah. So it's in my short term memory. So I do it at the thing and then I I forget it as soon as I walk away. Yeah, it's gone. It's just gone. Turns out that this doesn't uh, go anywhere in terms of like they don't run the plates or anything. But yeah, the- I mean he has the plates to hand over to someone, but like it's not like. He has a partial plate or anything like that, which is what I was expecting. I was expecting an argument with Dennis. <laughs> How many cars have those three numbers? Right. Two, five, seven. Mm-hmm. I think I wrote them down. <laughs> well, but what's actually happening here is Angie comes out to start talking to him and it's yeah. distracting him. And he's getting snippy with her because she keeps bothering him while he's trying to remember this. Yeah. Um, he's saying, OK, now now I'm out of it. Uh, they're gone. You have the thing. I should just call the cops now. I didn't yeah. really understand the logic here. He, so this is the first time where he says, like, look, for all I know, this is a scam and you're not actually his uh, yeah. sister. And I just helped you break a safe. You know, so I should just call the cops, I guess, in case. And then I can explain it or something. Yeah. Then she turns it around on him and says, like, well, you know, if this is some kind of con, do you right. really want to explain to the cops how you just broke into someone's house <laughs> and broke their safe? And this apparently, uh, this logic reaches him. It's a persuasive argument. <laughs> uh, also, he wants to get his whole $200 out of this somehow. So he takes the package and he also gives her the upper arm grab to bring her along back to the trailer. Because I wrote this down was the, uh, I'm getting my whole 200 out of this if I have to take it to small claims court. Mm-hmm. That's our Rockford. Back at the trailer, uh, this package... I'm I'm going to go ahead and say this is exactly what I expected, which is that yeah. <laughs> it's full of cash money. Um, Jim ruffles through it and says there must be half a million dollars here. So that's two point three, two point four million dollars in today's money. So you know it's it's a chunk of change. Uh, Angie does not look so good, and Rocky go ahead and goes ahead and cracks her a beer. Take a sip of this. This will help. It's like usually that's like, you know, whiskey or, you know, cognac or something. Oh, but this is rocky. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, it's an extremely rocky thing. Uh, I'm saying if, you know, there's this much money involved and those guys were after her, uh, Tom, Tom must be dead. That's what kind of seems to follow from what's been going on. And we see that Angie's, you know, freaking out about this. As you would. Uh, They, there's a, some back and forth here. What's she talking about? Will you just shut up a minute, Dad? I don't know what she's talking about. I'm trying to find out. Well, you're not doing too good a job. I know that, Dad, but I'm just getting warmed up, so butt out. I do love this fight. This is a good, like, early moment of 
Rocky kind of getting an understanding of uh, what Jim does for a living. This is before they come to any real understanding of it, right? Like Rocky openly disapproves of it, I think, at this point. We're still in season two. Right, uh, yeah. So it, it's fun to watch because mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> this is – this is definitely an area where Jim knows more than Rocky, uh, but Rocky sees somebody in trouble and wants to be able to to make it all right. And Jim knows it's going to take more more than just wanting it to be all right. Yeah, more than just good intentions here. Angie says that uh, she knows Tom. There's no way he could have stolen that money. If whatever it is, it's not that he stole it. Yeah, Jim is now fully on the side of well. Just in case, if this money's hot, which it probably is, and if Angie, if this is a, some kind of weird frame, yeah, we're still not going to call the cops, but what we're going to do is we're going to deposit this money in your bank in an escrow account. Um, and so we have a little cut to, to, to that where we are establishing that they have this box at the bank where they both have a key, and so yeah. they both need to be present. I dig this. This is, this is uh, Jim protecting himself through... Through bureaucracy. <laughs> bureaucracy and institutions. Oh, it's good stuff. That's a Rockford I like. I know and love. Uh, he leaves her because uh, he's going to go check some things out. And then we get a phone call to Federal Agent Shore. <laughs> is, it, is there a joke in the cut here? I think she says something like, remember, no cops. Something like that. I always like, my notes say, no police, but the feds. <laughs> like... So Shore, Agent Dan Shore, um, we've seen uh, seen seen Shore before, but not for a <laughs> long time. <laughs> so if we have any listeners who have joined us fairly recently, we've talked about this character in uh, our episodes 19, The No-Cut Contract, and 11, A Portrait of Elizabeth. However, this is the first appearance chronologically, except it's technically the second appearance. Oh, really? Yeah, so Shore is played by an actor named Wayne Tippett, uh, who's great. Uh, I I think his facial expressions are fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so he he plays this same character in those three episodes, this one and the two I just mentioned. This character, Federal Agent Shore, was in an earlier episode, but played by a different actor. It's a shame that he didn't get his own series. Now that would be a good spinoff. You could say things like, you could be Dan Shore, he's on the case. <laughs> <laughs> you could be Dan Shore, he'd get his man. Dan Shore, FBI. The proof that we will not invent a time machine within our lifetime is that <laughs> he has not yet gone back in time to make the Dan, Dan Shore, <laughs> he always gets his man spinoff <laughs> from the Rockford Files. Will he solve it in time? You could be Dan Shore. Well, Jim calls uh, and asks uh, if... Agent Shore um, knows anything about a federal agent named Bettingen. And yeah. this name apparently is, is of interest. Yeah, Shore just lights up. He's, he's giving him classic cop guff mm-hmm. that you get for Jim. Because like, when Jim calls, he's like, I got something for you. And Dan Shore is like, oh, uh, is it like a harassment case? Or, like, like he's, what, are you, what are you suing us for now? <laughs> But no, it is this. He has info about this federal agent. Jim sets up the meeting at a diner where they make a good omelet. Bring your wallet. <laughs> yes. And we cut to Jim eating an omelet. <laughs> just, just eat it. Scooping up some food, putting it in his mouth. Not a hot dog, not a taco, <laughs> but it is a diner omelet. 
Does that count as garbage food? Is it? Are they outside though? Like they're on like a patio. Yeah, I mean it's it's L.A. So out of doors. So this is a beautiful uh, second and a half of footage where we see Jim uh, taking full advantage of just a little moment where also he knows that he is not going to be paying for this omelet. Yes. You might say he's Dan sure he's not <laughs> going to be paying for this omelet. Uh, the first part of this scene is just what I refer to as tough guy banter. Yes. So there's another agent with Shore who Jim is like, I'm not going to talk to you until he goes away. That guy is clearly a gorilla. Uh, I think this is a great bit of, of writing craft here because, okay, let's assume the audience is predisposed to thinking that Dan Shore, uh, Agent Dan Shore, is on the up and up because mm-hmm. he's with the FBI. But the fact that he brought a goon with him, I think, is the first hint that uh, that this isn't a straightforward thing for Dan either, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think this is the, the a good cue to our audience that uh, that this isn't just dealing with the FBI. We're dealing with Dan Shore. <laughs> um, so this this banter also kind of establishes, I think, for us as the audience that they have had encounters before, right? Yeah. Kind of Shore implying that they can bring him in and yeah, you know, charge him with stuff. And, uh, Rockford being like, "You can't pin anything on me. I'm here as a friend this time. Just trying to help you out. Right. Just trying to help you out. Uh, once the uh, once the the, the gorilla does leave. Um, Jim tries to order Danny Boy an omelet, <laughs> which he will. He's having none of. Uh, forget it. Uh, if Jim wants to trade info, yeah, he admits that uh, they found Agent Bettingen dead. Uh, he was mm-hmm. stuffed in a trash can somewhere. Sounds awful. And you know, if you don't have anything for me, I can haul you in for his murder because you know about him. Right. You you mentioned his name. Uh, Jim, of course, is saying that you can never get that to stick. Uh, but he knows the name because he met a guy who had a phony ID with Bettingen's name uh, with the you know the photo cut out and replaced. This is a little ominous considering that Jim used the exact same phony ID tactic before. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think Jim has killed an FBI agent to get the... <laughs> the, the but it does, like, it's a little bit like, oh, okay, wait a minute. You know, Rockford, this is the murder of a federal agent. This is a very hot little item. I could hit you with withholding information in a murder investigation. What makes you think you can sit there and trade information? I think I can do it, Danny, because I am doing it. Shore gives in and says, okay, uh, there's a deal involving $2 million in forged stock certificate. Now, what can you give me? Right. And Jim gives him the, the 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 description of the car and the license plate. This is the guy who had his ID. And as he leaves, uh, tells them to direct the bill to shore. Forged stock certificates is such a such a Jimbo. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just. Uh, I mean, it could be uh, bearer bonds, but yeah. it is not. Uh, one last bit here is uh, Jim describing the. Uh, uh, the goon that is parading as oh as Bettingen, yeah Bettingen. Uh, he's like oh he's like you're your goon but three inches shorter and gray eyes. Oh and he might have a fat lip. It's sure it's like you hit him. <laughs> that 
is our Jim Rockford for this episode. <laughs> this is a Jim Rockford who will throw a punch. We now get a fairly extended look at a Jim Rockford uh, con within a con oh, to is... get where he wants to go. Yeah. So the, the, the place where Tom Paris worked is Bundy and Baines, this brokerage or investment firm or whatever, whatever it is. Uh, so Jim... First of all, he comes in in, in Clark Kent disguise, yes. so he has glasses and his hair is combed. That's exactly what I wrote down. <laughs> so he comes into this building, goes to a receptionist. He's from the home office. Uh, he's some kind of auditor, and he's trying to find his man, Jim Rockford. Jim Rockford. <laughs> in Tom Paris's office. And the receptionist calls over for Jim Rockford. Of course, right. he's not there. Says, you know, well, if he comes back, tell him that this, or if he shows up, tell him that this man is looking for him from his office. Yeah. And then another piece in here is that this is the fourth audit yeah. going on simultaneously, which is a nice little, I think, moment for us as the audience where it's like, oh, okay, something is indeed up. Jim then goes to Paris's office, which apparently is like on the same floor or whatever, uh, turns into Superman, uh, takes off his glasses and ruffles his hair. <laughs> Oh, uh, it's good. I also like the detail here where if for some reason someone who kind of vaguely knew what Jim Rockford looked like was in that yeah. office, they would recognize him because he took off his glasses. Uh, so he goes into Paris's office um, and he's all kind of rumpled up. He loses his tie and stuff because he's coming in uh, laying down the very relatable complaint about being hung up in traffic. Yes. Why is it that people on the other side of the road are always rubbernecking? What do you think they're going to see blood on the highway, uh, et cetera, et cetera, to the receptionist who is in uh, Paris's office? And so this woman, once she can finally get an award in Edgewise, uh, does confirm that he's like, are you Mr. Rockford? Yeah. <laughs> As he's now set up the expectation with your uh, other call, right? Brilliant. So, yes, indeed, he is. He is from the county assessor's office. So the, the place is called Bundy and Baines. She offers the name, and then a little bit later, he brings it back as if he knew. It's a very good cold read moment. Yeah. Because he originally, when he, he plays it like that, he's a little frazzled, and he can't remember who set it up. And mm -hmm. then later, he's just like, oh, yeah, Bundy, Mr. Bundy told me this or something like that. And it's just like... Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, I, I'm supposed to be here. I know this person. And then once she's established to her satisfaction that this is on the up and up, uh, they immediately fall into, like, man with authority, receptionist, yeah. running errands, like, hierarchy. Like, she, he sends her to, to get him coffee. Yeah. And, like, I think mindfully creates this dynamic that she's probably used to working for this, you know, important man yeah. organization or whatever, uh, because he has more that he needs to find out. Happy, I need a quick break. I'm going to grab a taco. You tell our wonderful listeners all the places that they can find you and your work on the information superhighway. I'll be right back. One way to find me is to go to twitter.com and search for at Epidiah, E-P-I-D-I-A-H. I'm usually responsive there. Otherwise, you can go to worldswithoutmaster.com where you can find my sword and sorcery fiction and role-playing games. And if you like role-playing games, maybe you want to check out digathousandholes.com where uh, I publish all my other role-playing games. 
oh no, I dropped my calculator. Nathan, while I go pick up a spare, why don't you tell the good folks uh, where they can find you on the internet? In addition to this podcast, I also design and publish role-playing games, including the Worldwide Wrestling Pro Wrestling role-playing game, among many others. You can find links to all of my games and other projects at ndpdesign.com. And of course, you can find me on twitter.com at ndpaoletta. Looks like you're back. You you ready to continue the arithmetic analysis for this episode there, Epi? I'm back. I have my DM42 with me, and I'm ready to get in, dig down into Rockford's books again. Mm. All right, well, I'm done with this delicious avocado taco. Well, let's get back to the show then. So he sets up in Tom's office. He brings up uh, something about Tom's boss, and she's like, oh, Mr. Whitlow. And he starts describing just a random description, right? And she's like, no, 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 he doesn't look like that at all. He's stocky, gray hair. I'm like, aha, that is our bad guy from earlier. Yes. Who, if you're like me, you're like, how do I f- know this guy? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he hits her with a, of course, you know what's going on. Yes. And so this is all, you said cold reading a moment ago. This is all cold reading where he's just yeah. like throwing out hooks and then just jumping on whatever she gives him. Uh, in our main narrative convenience moment, she does, in fact, know a bunch of stuff. <laughs> so that's <laughs> yes. so that's helpful. It feels like office gossip. Like, it doesn't feel unusual that she would know some of this stuff. I'm conducting this audit, and I want to ask you some questions, but I need to know what you know so I don't tell you anything that you're not supposed to know. Yes. <laughs> and she's like, okay, well, this is what I know. It's reasonable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the rumor is that Tom was uh, buying forged accounts from somebody, forged accounts or forged uh, certificates or whatever, and putting them in a street account. He didn't come into work today, and the Fed started an audit at 6 a.m. that morning. (laughs) That's what she has heard is going on. Mm -hmm. And then she also heard a rumor from someone in particular that the Feds were working with Tom to buy the forgeries. Yeah. And then she's like, why does the county tax assessor care about this? (laughs) And this, this is brilliant blather. It is perfect nonsense. Well, that's because the annual prepaid discount on all unlisted but depreciating securities is handled by the county tax assessor's office on all units up to 2457 of the new state tax code. With the exception of the new state tax board's uh, special auditing amendment, which doesn't go into effect till March anyway, you see. Watching this woman's face go from interest to feigned interest is is wondrous where's the emmy (laughs) that's what i want to know it's brilliant just watching this like like at first she's all conspiratorial with the office gossip the biggest thing that's happened you know probably ever and then he starts going into what he's about and it's just very expertly removes any desire she may have to know what what the hell his purpose is there uh give sharon spellman the emmy Yes. She was a character in in a TV series called Angie. (laughs) Uh, So this is the third of her four Rockford Files appearances, but we have not done any of her other episodes yet. So this is our, and not this character, obviously she bounces around. But uh, yeah, so we'll be seeing Sharon Spellman again. That is good. We have that to look forward to. Yeah, because she rules in this. Um, So uh, he runs this whole line of, of, Bull, and then she leaves. He's left alone. He starts poking around. And then a wild Mr. Whitlaw appears. And now that we have him in full in full frame with a little bit of dialogue. Yes. This whole time being like, okay, I've seen this guy before. 
how do I know this? How do I know this guy? How do I know this guy? How do I know this guy? And then finally pausing and bringing up IMDb uh, and finding out that he's the Big Lebowski. And of course, I know him and recognize <laughs> him as the Big Lebowski. <laughs> Why wouldn't I? Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, so David Huddleston is the actor, and uh, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, of course. Yes. <laughs> he's he's great. I don't know what else to say about yeah. him. But yeah, I mean, he's been in tons of stuff, but I think the the Big Lebowski is certainly the a definitional one. role yeah. <laughs> that people would know him from. Uh, so it's pretty fantastic here. He's a little, uh, he's not physically imposing. No. But he is very... Threatening? Yeah. Once he gets going, it's like, oh, this is not a good guy. <laughs> but even though he's a larger man, he's not a physically intimidating guy. Right. And even though we've seen him be physical in these scenes before, turns out he's the he's the he's the uh, uh, mid-level boss. There's a boss, right? Yes. But you have to fight him to get to the boss at the end <laughs> of the game, right? Uh, but yes, yeah, so he comes in and Jim runs all the same stuff. He kind of sticks to his story and tries to double down. But it turns out that not only has Mister Willow not didn't know anything about this, the county assessor already did their audit. So struck out on that one, Jim. Uh, and also when he tries to invoke uh, Mr. Bundy, Mr. Bundy's retired. Yes. I love when he's like, the you know, the county assessor's already done their audit. And Jim just goes for the Hail Mary. He's like, and he's back. Right. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> the first guy didn't do a good enough job. Yeah. <laughs> Will you swallow this? Is this something that I can get away with? No? Okay. All right. Uh, Whitlock goes to... Uh, Goes to the phone to have uh, Mary call security, and that's when Jim gets in. I think at this point, the third sucker yes. punch of the show gets him right in the gut. You know, he loses his breath, can't get out any more words, and then looks like he ties him to the office chair with the phone cord. And of course, as is contract- contractually required in such moments, he comes out of the office, closes the door, and says, You know, leave Mr. Whitlaw alone in there. He's going to be tied up for a while. Yes. <laughs> Buzzing. I don't. I don't want to pussyfoot around this. Jim walked in there with a gorgeous antique adding machine, mm, mm-hmm. and he left in such a hurry that he didn't take it. Now, I like to think that it wasn't his adding machine, but one he just picked up while he was in the stockbroker's office, and therefore there was nothing lost while he was <laughs> doing this. But still, I am a little worried about that device. And who it belongs to. And I hope it gets back to its rightful owner. Um, We have a brief scene where Whitlaw makes a call to Bundy. We see that there's the other goons that we've seen so far are with him. And he's surrounded by like pill bottles and stuff. So, you know, we're getting this look of he's probably infirm. uh, And it tells him, you know, this guy, Rockford, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Bundy says to check him out. And I think that's all we see of him. The, I think the fact that he's infirmed helps make me think that this is the highest level boss because that that is a little bit of a boss stereotype is the mm-hmm. the one that and I don't know if it's one that Rockford depends on too much but like you do see it from time to time where the boss is on their deathbed and that's part of why they're dangerous is that mm-hmm. they you know they have nothing to lose or. They have a time limit, right? Because they're going to die. Uh, in this case, we don't see him again. Yeah. So I think the scene is just to establish that this scheme, whatever it is, goes all the way to the top, right? Yeah. For a Rockford Files episode, 
especially for a canal script, I feel like there's a lot of kind of floating little things in this one. Part of why at the beginning I said, I, I feel like there's something else here. Yeah. That they made something out of a larger story. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think it's like, oh, they shot it. It's not like you were just talking about Easy Rider <laughs> uh, having three hours worth of footage and they cut it down to an hour and a half. I think that was in our plus expenses uh, patron only feed uh, before this episode. Uh, so for more thoughts about Easy Rider, check out patreon.com slash 200 a day. Um, I think this is more along of the lines of you sit down to write it and you probably map out some of the plot. It's a mystery. We need some twists and turns here, the twists and turns. And then you write those, but then you don't bring some of them to fruition. And then in the end, you're like, well, we have a good episode anyways. Let's just go with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like there's something, some stuff that's going to come up about Angie and her brother that uh, also has this feeling of like, well, okay. (laughs) Uh, How does that relate? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's an unresolved story with stuff that no. is like dropped and never picked up again. It yeah. more feels like there's these little elements that kind of poke out, kind of like pointing at other things that could be in the story that just aren't. Yeah. And this is one of those. So uh, we have a bit with um, Jim and, and Angie now that Jim has uh, learned this stuff. He engages in some creative speculation. Uh Shore gave Tom the half million to buy these bogus securities and assigned Bet and Jim to watch him while he was doing this. So right. perhaps in some kind of, you know, sting operation, right, uh, on his own firm. But then the agent ended up dead. And so now Shore is on the hook for that money. Yeah, he's on the hook for the money and also politically, right? Yeah. If it's an operation that goes south, he's kind of responsible. But, you know, someone already ended up dead. Uh, he wants to stash her in a safe place while he can figure out the rest. Um, and so we go to this motel where we get uh, um, Angie explaining her emotional attachment to Tom, yeah. why he matters to her so much, um, and why she can't believe that he would steal the money, and why she wants to keep doing what he said on the phone. Right. Uh, so turns out Tom's uh, he's, either, he's 10 years older than her. Yeah, he's he's definitely older than her, or fifteen like, years older than her, by something at least like a that. decade. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she was born late in their parents' lives, uh, born on a farm out in I think Maryland, she says, or something like that. But that uh, her dad got kicked in the head by a horse when she was, and she's like five, right? She doesn't remember yeah. this, but this is what Tom has kind of told her, uh, and he died, and then. Her mother followed him shortly after, and she has a line here where she says that it's really sad, but it's beautiful too, <laughs> which she's not wrong, right? Like there's a romance, there's like kind of a rom- romantic yeah. uh, element to this. She died of a broken heart, but like also we're watching the Rockford Files where people don't die of broken hearts. Right. So we're, <laughs> we're in this spot of like, okay, this doesn't seem right this is probably somehow suspicious we're seeing angie kind of her personal mythology that she's grown up with um and i think that becomes very apparent at the end of the episode but i think even in context to what i was kind of trying to say in our intro talking about these characters that have their their defining attribute in the context of this individual story is this set of blinders that they have and jim's role is to 
try and get those to shift somehow. Uh, Angie says that, you know, Tom, Tom raised her. He made all these sacrifices for her. You just see that he's like rich and lives over here and I'm right. not, but you don't understand all the things that he's done for me, uh, how much they love each other. And that Jim couldn't understand that kind of devotion. And so Jim comes back with, he doesn't want her b- devotion to be blind. You know, it's fine that you feel this deeply about your brother, but you also need to face the reality that I am starting to see as an outside observer. Yeah. Uh, he might have stolen this money. Uh, he might be dead. As Jim leaves to continue, you know, investigating Whitlaw or whatever, Angie stops him and wants him to tell her that Tom isn't dead. Yeah. And so this is the moment where you're like, okay, is this the comfort her with what she wants to hear moment? Right. Or is this where we need to hear what we need to hear? Jim chooses the second option and says that sometime she's going to have to start living for herself. She needs to face what's actually happening. And she's had this life, you know, kind of wrapped up with her brothers. But yeah. at some point, you need to make your own decisions, live life uh, for, your, for yourself. He leaves and we have this slow kind of, uh, pull, pull away shot on Angie as she has some, some tears dripping down her face. And it's very sad. He has this great line that's, you're going to have to look trouble in the eye and deal with it, which I think is sort of the, the thesis statement of like Rockford's role in this mm-hmm. episode and in these sort of episodes that you're talking about, right? Like this is, he, his is the job to look trouble in the eye and figure out how to deal with it while other people go on with their lives or try to. And you can be damn sure he's going to deal with it. <laughs> so this is our emotional low beat here yeah. uh, in the middle of our episode. We then go to following Jim for a while. Uh, Jim is making a, fo- making a phone call to a woman in a phone booth somewhere. Yeah. So this whole thing is a tight shot on her, just her mouth. Yeah. As she's speaking into the phone to Jim. Uh, every time we cut back and forth, instead of seeing her face, we see just her mouth. And so this is the, like, that motif coming back with the uh, the phone call, the tight shots with the phone calls. Yeah. It's a little, uh, like, where does he, what's his number? Like, <laughs> I, I think I might have missed the the detail that, like, how he got this number. He was, he's calling her back, essentially. Yeah. That, like, she called. And left a message. And left a message or something or said, call back, at, call this number at this time. Yeah. Because she's in a phone booth so that he can't track the number. And she says she's been waiting for it right. all morning or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she says that we, she uses, you know, we and our, uh, we have Tom Paris. Uh, Jim has half a million dollars of their money. And she wants to set up a meeting between the principals to make the exchange. We have some establishment of Jim not being a novice in these affairs where he's yes. like, oh, I'm sure you want me to go to a, you know, an empty lot at midnight and come alone right like that kind of stuff like no no you pick the time and and the place so he picks a hotel and there's a stairway up to the roof meet there at 4 p.m and if her man doesn't show the deal is off yeah i like that he specifically says that he's going to be late he's going to show up 10 minutes late um we're gonna see this woman again or we're going to see these lips again yeah who is this She's never explained, and we can't figure out, I can't figure out who she is on the IMDb. She is such a mystery that uh, she's not even part of the the cast, as far as I know. <laughs> well, there's a credit for Operator. 
I think it's the Jenny O'Hara. Okay, that okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Which yeah, so she's not supposed to be someone else in this episode. Yeah. And so this is another of those like, here's a thing that could be a thing. Yeah. In context, I was totally fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It felt like an art film kind of moment, you know? Yeah. Uh <laughs> there's kind of like a seventies sensibility to that yeah. where it's like, here's something that's just part of the fabric of this episode. Uh it doesn't need to be connected to anything else. Yeah, I think there's one other thing about this that they'll talk about later, but it is an interesting challenge to the audience, right? Like, are you waiting to see who this is, or are, do you just let this be an element and move yeah. on? Uh, Jim goes to this motel for the for the exchange, but once he gets to the roof, sure enough, there are uh, cop sirens going and uh, police cars arriving, and he has been set up. He manages to flee to the Firebird, but he gets blocked in by a couple cop cars. It's the feds and, of course, you're Dan Shore. Yes. <laughs> See? It's perfect. <laughs> you're Dan Shore. It's the feds. There yes, we go. Yes, that's how you do it. Let me guess. You got a tip saying that I'd be here with half a million dollars. That ain't what you got, Rockford. And they open his trunk and the body of Tom Paris is in Jim's trunk. Yes. Uh, and again, I, I don't want fans of the podcast 20 a day to panic this isn't the same tom paris that you're thinking of. <laughs> it's spelled differently uh jim says he can explain but it'll take a while and then we cut to a housekeeper at the hotel <laughs> telling jim and shore that two men dragged angie away screaming out of the hotel her delivery of this it was the darndest thing. <laughs> this woman was abducted. Like, oh, yeah, that is the darndest thing. Mm-hmm. That's horrifying, ma'am. Horrifying. My headcanon here is that this is a seedy hotel where this kind of yes. thing would not lead to calling the cops. Because seriously. Yeah, exactly. And Jim, I think, is he's got his hands cuffed behind his back. Sure is there with, with Jim and Jim is handcuffed. Yeah. So I guess Shore is checking up on Jim's story, right? <laughs> Uh, so we go to Jim's trailer where Shore's looking through his checkbook, which is a mess. We have a joke about that. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Uh, he let Jim talk him into this. Apparently, the story that Jim has is enough to convince Shore that there's stuff going on. Yeah. They're not just going to haul him in for this murder. Um, and Jim lays out all the stuff we were kind of talking about earlier with, you know, the reason that Shore has to work with Jim is that he's in deep with his superiors because this whole deal has gone south. Yeah. So this is the only way that Shore is going to get out of trouble. Um, they are waiting for a phone call, which Jim receives, and we have the same uh, operator on the phone saying that we have the girl, you have the key, so we're going to trade you, Angie, for the other key to the safe deposit box because all right. they want, after all, is their money. Jim does one of his things... Uh, that I always appreciate. Clearly, this is all going to be a setup for the FBI to make this arrest, yeah, yeah. right? Like, Shore is right there listening to yeah. this with him. But in order to make this a convincing, uh, <laughs> convincing statement, he's like, okay, fine, but uh, I'll only do it for $100,000. He establishes that there's a finder's fee that if he just went to the feds, he would just get the the ten percent or whatever. Yeah. Which is a considerable amount of money. And that they're not going to hurt her because they're already in uh, that's like more trouble than what it's worth. Which that part I don't buy. They've already killed a person. Right. Like I was like, 
I wouldn't gamble with that, Jim. But also, I know that Jim's not literally gambling with that. Like, he's got a plan. Mm -hmm. And also, he's probably banking on them yeah. planning to do what they do, which is not going to be holding up their end anyway, right? So, yeah, it's kind of a he knows that they know that they, it, it ends with a he knows, whatever, yes. however <laughs> deep that goes, right? Um, they uh, tell him where to go. Uh, he puts the key in his shoe and Shore says, they're going to find it there. And Jim <laughs> replies, that's the idea. Yeah, it's just... Uh, they go to put a uh, FBI uh, tracker on his car and when Shore reaches under to, to magnet it or whatever, there's one already there. <laughs> there was a detail earlier where he was sure they weren't followed. How did they find Angie? Right, yeah. Well, that explains how they found the motel. They were tracking me electronically. I mean, these are for official use only. How do hoods get their hands on this stuff? Just isn't fair, is it? Just not fair, is it? So we're going to be getting into our finale sequence here. But before that, question. Answer. At what point did they put a body in Jim's car? <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> this, I think, falls under the umbrella of here are things. Because they also bugged his car. Right. So... Okay, so they know that he's on the case after he confronts the false FBI agent. Right. Uh, he gives them his name when he comes into the office, right? He's Jim Rockford, county tax assessor. Mm -hmm. So it could be somewhere around there. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes things happening. Right. I feel like So I feel like there's one line in our last sequence that kind of addresses this stuff. Mm -hmm. This is also, again, with the... We we are 100% with Rockford as he moves through the story, right? So yeah. Once we synced up with him, uh, we've just been with him the whole time. So he didn't see them doing it, so we didn't see them do it, which is fine. It's just also like, so they killed this guy, and then they kept his body around long <laughs> enough that they could put it in Jim's car at least a day later. That was the question that I was thinking about was like, did they have him on ice? Was he dead? Were they... Or did they have him and then, then they killed him? They, they could have used him to get at the money some way. I think uh, uh, Angie says something about, like, he's dead or they have him and they're going to get the combination out of him. Yeah. Right. And the guys did go to where his safe was. So one, we can infer that there was some amount of time. Yeah. They, they didn't just pull him out of that phone booth and kill him. Right. That there was right. some something else. I did not question it at all in the moment, and now just going back over it is kind of like that's pretty. That's a pretty serious. Uh... <laughs> so, something's missing there. Yeah, I accept that it could have happened. I just like just now. I'm like, huh. I wonder when that happened. Well, Jim goes to his meeting. We have this nice long establishing shot of this empty lot as Jim kind of slowly pulls in in the Firebird, which is uh, another nice touch that I appreciated. Yes. He is then blocked in from the back by a car, and Whitlow and the other goon, I think the comb-over goon. Yeah. And so the Big Lebowski and the fake <laughs> FBI agent pull up next to him, kind of trapping him between the two cars. Yeah. They roll down their windows. Uh, Jim and, uh, is it Whitlow or Whitlaw? He's credited as Sherm in the credits. Sherm. That doesn't help. Uh, in the Big Lebowski. Yes. <laughs> they have some uh, banter. All right, you get out and get in this car. I'll take you to somebody that can set the deal. 
You don't think I'm going to put $100,000 in the trunk of this car, do you? Nothing doing, Wit. Now, you want to get out of that thing and get in here with me, I just might consider taking you someplace where we could call your principal and meet, but I'm not handing myself over to you on a bet. Comover Goon gets out of the car and comes around the front playing with the knife and then goes to stab at the Firebird's tire. And Jim is having none of it. Oh, it's so great. I just, like, of all the things to be threatened, with a knife. They apparently didn't think this through because while he's blocked in on two sides, he is completely (laughs) free to move on the other two sides, right? If the car is four sides. Um, So he is able to hit the gas and uh, break out of this little situation before his tire gets stabbed. And then we have a brief chase sequence. Yeah. The, the the editing here is a little... There's a moment where he's looking to do that and it's clear that the two cars are very far away from each other from one angle and mm-hmm. like... But it hurt me, hurt my soul watching the, the Firebird literally shove a car into the... the it's like, oh no! So there's a big empty lot with all these kind of industrial like remnants so they're yeah. weaving around like big chunks of concrete and stuff. And then he sees a... An opening in like a like a rusty gate that's open. He makes a break for it, shoots through the opening, but then we cut to the other side and see that there's like a four foot drop on the other side. So the firebird just goes through and then thunk and is is trapped there, which could not have been good for that uh, stock car. Yeah, oh, uh, or for James Garner driving it. Um, so he's stuck. He cannot escape. Uh, he gets out of the car. He's like, okay, fine. I guess I'll come in your car. He gets a hand up to the higher level by our comb-over goon, the one who he has sucker-punched twice. Yes. And if you'll remember uh, in that conversation, said something about, like, if this was a fair fight, you would have dropped me, right? Yes. So he squares up with his fists up, like, okay, let's go. And the goon just gives him this really heavy-looking punch right across the jaw, which drops him. It's a classic formula, the the rule of three. You get to do it twice, but the third time it, it doesn't work or it fails the first two times. And then on the third time it comes. It's just, yeah, it's just beautiful just to see it come to fruition like that. This is a good and it's also serving two purposes here because it pays that off. It's a great yeah. moment. It also puts Rockford on the ground so that he can. Yes. He can grab the tracker that Shore put under his car without making a big deal out of it. And this seems like a weird thing, but OK. Shore was like, when you need us to come in, break this. Which I'm not sure how he was supposed to do that from outside the car, but that was to set up this moment, right? Sure, okay. But why put it, why not just put it in his pocket? Right. Why store it there, aside from showing us that they they had another tracker? Like, that, like there's a narrative convenience for storing it there. But whatever. This payoff was worth it. Because it was a little surprise to me where I was like, Oh, okay. Like, that's funny. And then he grabs it. I was like, oh. Yeah. So uh, they're being tracked. Um, We see Shore uh, following them. Um, And then we cut to uh, one of the goons emptying the key out of Jim's shoe, as promised earlier. Yes. (laughs) Mr. Bundy will be pleased. Uh, So uh, Big Lebowski has Jim and Angie and the other goons in some kind of, like, garage or something. We have the key. So now we can take care of both of you. Like, what do you mean, take care? I mean, kill you. <laughs> Very direct. This is kind of the menace I was talking about with, yeah. with this character here, where he gives that order so, like, kind of coldly. 
And Jim's like, how are you going to get the box without us? You need our signatures and we need to be there. There's a whole bureaucracy here. Why? It's like, why? Don't, you, don't you know anything? I think this couple sentences is doing a lot of work here. We had a very good forgery expert duplicate your signature, which your wallet was kind enough to provide us. I have sent for a very reasonable facsimile of both you and Miss Paris. The gentleman who will play your part at the bank is also a dealer in Las Vegas. He will simply palm the signature card and give the bank the forgery. It is troublesome and highly complicated, but terribly effectual. It is troublesome and highly complicated, but terribly effective. And I think that is doing the work of trying of like explaining yeah. all this like where the body came from. Right. These people are willing to do troublesome and highly complicated things if they're as effective. As long as they're effective, yeah. And it also fits into that stuff that I'm I'm, you know, kind of talking about where I I feel like there was a lot of twists and turns written into this that they didn't they ran out of show to to satisfyingly put to an end, right? Mm-hmm. Our goons are are taking Jim and Angie uh, away to to take care of them. And I guess they're going through some kind of nursery or something. So they're yeah. kind of in single file. Angie's in front. And then she uh, suddenly drops down. And Jim uses this moment to kind of go to look like he's trying to help her. And then when the goon behind him is leaning down, he pulls a plant off of a rack and hits him with it and is a... Uh, definitional Jim taking advantage of a sudden change to, uh, you know, make a break for it. Yeah, they take some shots at him after that, right? Right. I, it's just so simple, but it's such a great, effective special effect was uh, Jim and Angie duck. You hear gunfire. You can see in the distance somebody pointing a gun. And in the foreground between you and Jim and Angie, a flower shakes as if a <laughs> bullet went through, like, you know... <laughs> It's just... I don't think I noticed that because I was uh, taking notes. It's... I mean, maybe I'm overreading it. Maybe, like, Jim and Angie, as they duck, bump into it or something. But, like, it it really definitely felt like... Like a bullet was going overhead, kind of? Yeah, yeah. Like, a bullet going by would make this flower shake. So we'll just shake this flower and the audience will feel it. And I was like, yeah, I did. I'll accept that that was on purpose. But, yes, there is a brief scuffle of action with these shots, as you say. Uh, Jim... As they're scrambling away, he breaks the tracker on the, he like hits it on the ground yeah. or something. So then we cut outside and we see the feds moving in um, and they basically make a barricade of cars. And then uh, uh, Whitlaw and uh, I think so, the other goons get back in their car and they're making a break for it. But they drive out of this entryway directly into the barricade of federal agents and uh, justice, we presume, will be served. <laughs> we end the scene with Jim congratulating Angie. That was so smart of you. If you hadn't dropped, we couldn't have made it. And she says, dropped? I tripped. It was an accident. <laughs> and we freeze frame on her. Uh, on our first false... False ending. Yeah. Though I feel like that would have been a perfectly acceptable ending. Mm-hmm. But we actually have an emotional beat to finish. Yeah. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's do it. Let's hit that emotional beat. So just a quick question for you. I assumed that she tripped by accident. Yeah. I don't think it was framed in a way that like she looked like she was doing that intentionally. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, I fell for it. Yeah, my notes say, well done. 
So she suckered you in too. No, I, I think I thought it because it looked like there was a glance between the two of them just before it happened. Mm-hmm. So I, I just had like a moment of like, how did they convey that? And then it turns out that they didn't. Like there was no no telepathic command to do this. And I kind of like that it was an accident. Yeah. I think it fits their relationship. Yes. <laughs> so we have the freeze fame, but we're not done. Uh, we go to the federal building where uh, we are Dan sure that we're going to get some closure. <laughs> sure is telling Jim that uh, he told Angie part of it, but not the rest. We don't even really get the like, oh, the company was issuing fake certificates. Yeah. I think that's... it's just left to the audience to be like, okay, they got what's the legal system's going to take its course, right? Tom Paris. Mm-hmm. He seems to have turned state's evidence, right? Like, right. The whole reason why this is blowing up because the whole company is is illegal or appears to be involved in this illegal operation. Mm-hmm. So it seems that it, that it wasn't like Tom Paris got caught doing something illegal or whatever, but like that he he at some point the the FBI got some wind of. Yeah. Fake certificates being bought or issued or something. And for whatever reason, Tom Paris was the one that they approached with the money right. to get this sting underway. And so he had the money in his safe in his house before he could spend it on the certificates, I guess. Yeah, that could be. Or he was planning to steal it and then the other guys found out about it or... Something, something. It doesn't matter necessarily. But I just, sometimes the episode gives us like a couple sentences of, here's what was going on. And this one does not, because it's more concerned with Angie than with the crime. Um, So the rest of it (laughs) is that they ran the body's prints. And Tom Paris was not Tom Paris. His name was Theodore Kane. And he... Uh, was living under assumed identity because he is in fact wanted for a 20 year old murder uh, where it's it's just like each sentence is like yeah it's like more and more Uh, so he killed his dad because his dad beat up on his baby sister and he came home from school one day and saw it happening and snapped yeah so Tom killed their dad because he beat up Angie when she was, like, a child. Like, so she's repressed this or was too young to, to remember it or, or what have you. So he found that out. And then so he told Angie about, you know, that Tom was dead, I guess, and about the crimes and whatnot. But then says, I didn't tell her that part because losing him was obviously hard enough on her. And he couldn't yeah. do that to her. So we, he, So here we have the... The person with the knowledge choosing to shield right. her instead of make her face it. Uh, and we end the scene with a with Jim saying, you know, Dan, you have your moments. And Dan replies, it pleases me that you think so. <laughs> I love that reply. There's just something about it that's just very, like, both honest and above it. Like, it doesn't matter to me, but it pleases me. Yeah, exactly. So how did you feel about this scene? <laughs> Well, I, I mean, this is the thing that, that drives it home for me. I feel like when they set out to write this one, that was the hook that they set out to write. Mm-hmm. Like, what if the person that hires Rockford 
thinks the world of her brother, uh, but because of this tragic past, she doesn't know the truth about her brother. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, sure. So what is it that she's hiring Rockford for? Is it to investigate the brother? No, there's something else happening. And let's roll on the chart of uh, Rockford crimes, forged doctor <laughs> certificates. Okay, so it's forged stock, you know, like, and and then built built an episode out of that, mm-hmm. about uh, out of that role, out of that random bit of, like, where we're going to go. And then never satisfactorily came back to here <laughs> until the very end of the episode where they were like, oh, that's right. We wanted it to be about this thing instead. And so they, they delivered this. And there's elements of this, like you were pointing out, this plays into the whole theme of seeing the world you want to see and who is it that's looking trouble directly in the face, right? Like this is, this is the, uh, that plays into this, but it wasn't, integrated into it throughout it feels like i'm getting down on the episode and i'm not Mm -hmm. if they didn't have this ending bit if they ended on our false ending Mm -hmm. i would not have left with unanswered questions i mean we we discussed a few of them but like you know uh i like to talk about the emotional heart of the story we got the emotional heart in the 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 scene in the motel where she talks about why she cares about Tom so much. Yeah. Like, we got that. And that was kind of its own fairly contained thing. So, yeah, I didn't feel like that was leaving things unresolved. Because we do see her, you know, come face to face with the reality over the rest of the episode. Yeah. But, yeah, and then this elevates that to being more primary in the story than I thought it was going. But then I thought it was. Again, yeah, I, I agree that I'm, I don't think it's... A criticism. Like, I don't think it's bad, but it is kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, we do have a final scene with Jim and Angie out on the pier. She tells Jim that he, that her brother did once tell her that he wasn't Tom Paris or something like that. Right. Uh, you know, he wasn't who he, who he says he is, but he was very depressed at them and later told her it was a joke. Um, but, if he wasn't Tom, then who the hell is Angie? And so here's, I think our, you know, our, our title is, is getting affirmed here, yeah. right? Like Angie now has to recreate her own life. She says that if he was stealing, so I guess he was stealing. Right. <laughs> I mean, the whole company was, so it, it still might just be the whole company. Uh, so if he was stealing, uh, he couldn't have be he couldn't have been what I thought he was. Right. And now Jim decides the other way. Instead of being like, oh, he really, (laughs) it's like, he really wasn't what you thought. He does his uh, comforting thing. He loved you. He took care of you. And he was your brother. I guess for now, that's all I need to know. And then we end our episode with a freeze frame on her face as she stares out over the water. My note on that one is freeze frame on complex emotion. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, I, yeah, like, yeah. overall, I really enjoyed the episode. There's, like, wonderful moments of craft. We get a really good con that falls apart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's great. Um, we get Jim uh, just setting things up, like, the, the, the meeting at the end and, and, and all that. Um, and I, I don't even want to say this is a criticism. It's just... Uh, 
I am interested to know. Like, I'd like to, I'd like to get the cliffs, not the cliffs. I'd like to get the, you know, the initial outline. Yeah. Like, what is it that they were like, this is important that they may have switched gears at some point, but then remembered at the end, like, oh, we should keep this in there. So sometimes, you know, we watch an episode and it's like, yeah, that was, you know, everything gelled. It was cohesive. Everything, you know, was running on all cylinders. Uh, Sometimes there's an episode where it's kind of like, okay, like the themes are are strong. We have good jokes. The story kind of doesn't make much sense or whatever. And here I feel like the only way I would be able to tell whether this episode was doing what it wanted to do is if Mm -hmm. I knew what it wanted to do. I'm not yeah. sure that I know what the goal of the episode was. So it could have nailed it or it could be off the mark. And right. I just don't know. So uh, by default, I'm going to assume it nailed it and just right. had these weird things hanging off of it somewhere. But like, uh, uh, yeah. It has a higher proportion than normal of vestigial elements. Yeah. And then it has like the, the, uh, uh, the woman on the phone that... The more I think about it, that's one of my favorite parts of the episode because I do it. I I like seventies art weirdness. Uh, it it kind of reminds me of the, um, not visually, but stylistically, it reminds me there's a, uh, the Columbo episode with, uh, John Cassavetes as a, uh, orchestra conductor. He's the murderer. There's a sequence. Spoilers. uh, Sorry. There's a (laughs) sequence in it where he's wearing sunglasses and. The camera keeps on his face. They use his sunglasses as the uh, surface to play the image, like to, to play the the footage. So instead oh, of watching yeah. the footage, it's playing on his sunglasses. Uh, and it's weird. <laughs> like, yeah, it is kind of a bizarre effect, but I really like it. Yeah. Like it, it works in context and everything. And it's something I feel like you just wouldn't see in other decades of film. And and the the operator also had a personality. Like yeah. she had this like southern waitress charm to her that just like she's kind of lascivious too. Yeah, like we got a little like kind of Rocky Horror style like tongue kind of yeah floating around and close <laughs> close uh, frame and like the casual violence threat. You know, she is negotiating with him and appears to have some kind of negotiating power. What what is her role in this operation? <laughs> like it's, but you know they're they're willing to do things that are complicated as long as it's yeah. effective, which yeah. is a nice contrast with Jim, who is going to do the least complicated thing possible right. as long as it is minimally effective. Yes, and the more complicated he gets, the worse, as we know from Chicken Little as a little chicken. There is a little a little bit to Jim where uh, you can tell that he enjoys the cons, so he he does go the extra mile for those sometimes <laughs> where it's just like, eh, like in this one, he's like, okay, I'm going to lay all the groundwork and, and, and do all this stuff. Uh, but also I'm going to get myself to a point where the only way out is to punch the guy. In the <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to quickly hit on the, the IMDB reviews for this episode. Cause they're kind of interesting. Um, just skimming them. Mm-hmm. There is a clear split between people who really like the episode and people who think it's, uh, mawkish and doesn't make any sense. Okay. And it seems to hang on whether you find, uh, Elaine Helville, the actress who's playing Angie, whether you find her 
endearing or not or find her sympathetic or not i should say oh okay there's a couple comments i don't want to read too much into imdb reviews yeah but there's a couple comments that make me think that if you have a personal story that might echo her story that she is very compelling yeah um and i think that is an interesting split i feel like she did a good like i feel like her performance was very good yeah, I'd, like I've got, I've got no problem with her. I have no problem with the episode, though. So that's not even it. Like, uh, I, just even thinking about the amount that she's in the episode isn't that much. But it's the most uh, emotionally important yeah. part. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to be at the top of everyone's list, right? Right, right. Well, uh, certainly I enjoyed it. And like I said at the, at the beginning, uh, I had some memory of enjoying it previously because it... You know, when it started, I was like, oh, yeah, uh, but maybe maybe it's just the big Lebowski. <laughs> I very much enjoyed watching the episode. I feel like it's kind of its own little unit. Like once right. I when I compare it to other episodes, I don't know if I'm necessarily going to recommend it over. Right. Right. A lot of other episodes. Uh, but taken as its own little unit of TV, I think it's we, again, the tradecraft is really great. It is interesting. Yeah. I don't know if it's totally cohesive right yeah and i think that's all i have to say about the reincarnation of angie do you have anything else uh no i think that 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 about covers it my last question for you is do you think that jim did end up with that finder's fee oh that is a good question did he get his two hundred dollars for the one day that he (laughs) was going to charge angie i bet you he didn't get the finder's fee you could be damn sure he didn't get his finder's fee (laughs) Um, but, uh, well, I, I don't know. He might've, he might've pulled off his finder's fee at the very least. I think he, he got 25 and I'd like to think that he also got the dollar. He, he got the final dollar 26 to yeah, round out yeah, the 25, exactly. uh, uh, that he charged Angie originally might've lost the 74 cents and change that dropped to the bottom of his car. He definitely needs to get some work done on the firebird. But yeah. That is. Yeah. That is uh, the cost of doing business. Um, well, speaking of the cost of doing business, I feel like we have earned our $200 for the day. Thanks again to all of our listeners. Uh, we really appreciate it. We appreciate it so much that we're going to keep on doing the show. <laughs> That's weird. I didn't know we were voting on that today. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we will be back next time to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files. Boing, boing. Boing, 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 boing. <laughs>